0: Welcome to Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for meta-modern mutants interested in meditation, neuroscience, Dzogchen, Dune, Tantra, Zen, non-duality, awakening, and much, much more. My name is Michael Taft, your host on the podcast, and in this episode I'm happy to be speaking once again with Chandra Easton. Chandra Easton has taught meditation and yoga since 2001 and has had the good fortune to study with many Tibetan and Western Buddhist teachers such as His Holiness the Dalai Lama, His Holiness the Karmapa, Lama Sultrim Alioni B. Allen Wallace, Tulku Sagnak Rinpoche, and Jennifer Wellwood. She's currently the Assistant Spiritual Director and Head Teacher at the Tara Mandala Retreat Center. And now without further ado, I give you the episode that I call Vision, Visualization, and Vajrayana with Chandra Easton. Chandra, welcome to the Deconstructing Yourself podcast.
1: It's a pleasure to be here. I always love deconstructing myself with you. (laughs) Yes,
0: (laughs) it's fun to do. Yeah, and we're recording here on a day right after the night of the full moon. And it reminds me of your name, Chandra, Chandra, the moon, and just how much stuff you're doing in public, like, so visible, so out there, right? Completely on fire. I'd love to hear about some of the stuff you're up to.
1: That's funny. Yeah, Maybe not so lunar, huh? (laughs) Maybe more solar. (laughs) Maybe more solar, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I don't feel like I'm out there, but maybe that's the way it is now with Zoom and online, Accessibility. It's so nice not to travel so much and get to teach in my pajamas and all of that kind of fun stuff. But I have been teaching a lot online, particularly around the work that I've been doing with the 21 Taras research that I've been doing for my book. And it's been fun to share it with people to help bring it alive and get feedback. And right now I'm teaching a second round of the 21 Taras course where we're doing a year long immersion into the 21 Taras. It's every other week. So it's two classes a month for two hours. And we're going really slow. Like each class just focuses on one Tara. And then people have two weeks to deeply dive into developing their own relationship with that particular Tara, her characteristics, is she wrathful or peaceful, and what's the mantra, what's the meditation, visualization, all of that. And so part one already started in September, but part two will start in January. So that's something that people could hook into. People can join part two and then part three without doing part one. Now, if
0: people know about Green Tara, they usually just imagine one Green Tara. So, how are there 21 Green Taras?
1: (laughs) They're not all green. (laughs) They're 21 uh, different colors. There's only one green in this 21 Tara pantheon that I am researching, which is based in the Nyingma, the ancient tradition of Tantric Buddhism that came into Tibet from India. But there are other traditions as well, and there might be More green ones in those. Green Tara is like the queen of all the Taras. She kind of rises above and rules over all the other Taras, so to speak. (laughs) And she can be kind of set apart and her own cycle of teaching. She's really the most popular expression of the Great Mother as Tara in Tibet. But in the 21 Tara Pantheon from the Nyingma tradition, that was a Terma cycle, a treasure cycle revealed by the great Tertan Jigme Lingpa in the 18th century Mm -hmm. Tibet. The system from the Nyingma tradition has one green tara, and that is the ninth tara. Her name is Tara Kadiravani, which is tara of the Kadiravani forest, the teak forest or hardwoods that people translate differently, or the acacia. I think the acacia tree Mm -hmm. is more accurate. So, the Acacia Forest, and this is from an actual place in India where she's said to have resided and people would have visions of her. I believe Nagarjuna has a story of having a vision of her in the teak forest. So, Tara Kadiravani is the green Tara most well known.
0: And is the greenness pointing to the forest quality?
1: Yes, yes, Tara of the forest, exactly. You know, the healing Tara, her main quality or her main enlightened activity, you could say, is to save beings from fear and danger. So she's very much like a savioress. There's this old story that I've never forgotten of a mother and child who were by the riverside. The mother was washing her clothes. This was in Tibet many, many years ago. Washing their clothes by the riverside and the child was playing in the water and got swept away in the river and started to drown and the mother couldn't get her and so she called out to Tara, oh Tara, you know, and said her mantra, please come and save my child. And the story goes that Green Tara peered out of the sky, reached down and brought the child out of the river and put her on the shore and left. So there are all sorts of stories like that of Tara saving people, even during the diaspora when the Chinese communist government invaded Tibet wholeheartedly in 1959. I mean, they started to come in to eastern Tibet in the 1950s. But during this time of slow and then more swift takeover of Tibet, people were forced into exile and there are stories of people praying to Tara as they're running through a valley where they're getting shot at by the Chinese soldiers and no one got hit and magic happens and there's protection. Green Tara is a very, very important figure in Tibetan popular culture and practice in real life very active. The green color, though, refers to one of the elements. So, the color of each Tara also has different repercussions, different meanings. And so, the color green in Tantric Buddhism refers to the element of air or wind. And so, she's swift like the wind. She's in movement. She's accessible in that way. Yeah, swift Tara. Often times, she's called the swift, compassionate one.
0: Now, as you're teaching the course on the Tara's, are you finding that people are relating to a Tara or one of the Tara's In this kind of traditional, like, goddess who can actually save you way? Or are most people considering it in a more psychological sense, like qualities you can work on in yourself? Or what are you finding? Like, how's our current crop of practitioners relating Mm -hmm. to this very traditional being slash archetype?
1: In many ways, people are engaging in it. It's very interesting to be on the receiving end. Uh, I get stories, emails coming to me of different experiences people will have that are sort of visionary, but then also just those kind of serendipitous blessings or things that we could never imagine just happening. And it seems connected, but we can't prove it. And I try to encourage people to relate to her on various levels on a more ultimate or absolute level she is the nature of our own mind and that's always resonated most with me you know i feel more than reifying a deity out there is going to come down and get my kid if they're going to get hit by a car or something like that like that's great those stories are beautiful and maybe that happens and stuff does happen like i'm not discrediting that but my subjective inclination is to Really remind people that on a deeper, more essence level, that Tara is none other than our own Buddha nature, you could say, or our own natural state, our own Rigpa, whether we're male, female, non-binary, you know, non-conforming, all of that. It doesn't matter what the gender is, that energy of Tara ultimately is the nature of mind. But people do relate to her also archetypally, because what's fun is we get to explore their qualities. Like the second Tara is beautiful. She is Saraswati. Her name is Tara Vajra Saraswati. Uh Uh-huh. And so, in Tibetan, her name is Drolma Yangchenma, who means the great melodious one. Yang is melody, and Chenma means like the great goddess. Drolma means Tara.
0: Does she have the vina instrument, like uh, Saraswati?
1: What's interesting is not in this iconography, now, there are other practices, uh, deity yoga, so to speak, of Saraswati in Tantric Buddhism, not just in Hinduism, where she is depicted as riding a white swan, holding or playing a vena. That's very common, too, but in this particular 21 Tara matrix, you could say, or pantheon, she actually has a different symbol associated with her, and each of the Taras have a unique symbol that is resting on their lotus flower that's rising up over their left shoulder. And that kind of gives you more of a hint of what their magical power is or what their focus is. And this one is a melong on her lotus flower, her utpala, her blue lotus flower. And the melong is the Tibetan word for a ritual mirror. It's usually round. And it has very beautiful symbolic meaning to it. And in the middle of that ritual mirror is inscribed her seed syllable, which is hring, H-R-I-N-G, hring. Yeah, and so the ritual mirror symbolizes the nature of mind, right? So it's often used as a teaching tool where a a Dzogchen Lama, you know, teacher of the Great Perfection Tradition in particular, will hold up a mirror for their students to see and tell them to meditate on that and to feel the nature of their own mind is that, like a mirror. It has the capacity to reflect all manner of appearances, but it itself is unchanged by those appearances. So it's a beautiful teaching and it leads us to Wisdom, which is really what Saraswati's ultimate purpose is, is to help us develop wisdom, of course, expression. She's the goddess of the arts, of writing, poetry, song. Culture, science on all of its levels. My one liner is that Saraswati is the goddess of arts and culture or arts and sciences. <laughs> Liberal <laughs> arts. Yeah. But ultimately our purpose is to bestow supreme wisdom and that mirror is what points to that, shows us that.
0: Yeah, and if I'm not mistaken, that seed syllable Krim is the seed syllable for Saraswati also. Yeah. I'm just curious when we see nice formulated table. Here's these 21 goddesses, 21 Taras, and they all have mantras and they all have specific symbols Mm -hmm. and so on. Usually that's a signal to me anyway, that there's a particular sacred text that has published this table. Where does this list of 21 Taras come from?
1: It comes from a tantra that arose in India in the 11th century called the 21 Praises to Tara and it still exists in Sanskrit, and it also became extremely popular in Tibet. I believe it was a Tibetan translator, monk, scholar who had been doing a lot of travel back and forth and bringing Dharma to Tibet in the 11th century, who brought it back to Tibet. So, Buddhism had already been in Tibet for a few hundred years, but this tantra entara was in Tibet earlier. There's some different stories about when she first came. But she really took root in the 11th century with this uh, Bhutan, who was uh, the scholar who brought 21 praises, as well as the Atisha Deepamkara, who brought the Lojong, you know, the mind training, compassion teachings, became the Kadampa school in Tibet from India. So he was a huge devotee of Tara. In fact, she was his Ishta Devata. His main practice deity, Atisha, a very important figure in Tibetan and Indian Buddhist history. But in any case, so this text is not that long. I think it's 24 or 27 stanzas. And the primary 21 are devoted to describing Tara as the great goddess, you know, as a great mother in 21 different expressions. And then the extra few stanzas are just kind of summing it up and talking about how you can practice to her. But the main ones are those 21. And what's interesting is, is originally what I understand from Kenpo Tse Wang Dungyal and Kenchen Peldon Sherap, two very important scholars, Kenpos, who write about the 21 tars in the Nyingma tradition, they say is that originally she wasn't conceived of as 21 different deities these were just 21 different stanzas to describe the essence you know the one tara but over the centuries there became more expression and creative articulation and tankas and statues and mantras and it's like she grew out of that stem cell of the original tantra into a more diverse body like a mandala so that's why you have the surya gupta tradition that is the earliest that came out of India, the sage, the Mahasiddha Gupta, was very devoted to her, had many visions of Tara. I don't know which Tara, it might have been white Tara. And he has a tradition that is very different iconographically than the Atisha and then the Nyingma traditions as well. So people might feel like, oh, well, I saw Tara too was orange or green or red. And that's probably because you're looking at a different lineage, different expressions yeah, sometimes each stanza will indicate specifically what color she is, and but other times it's more vague, more about her mood or her power or what she's holding or what she means.
0: So you're going to go into all this in the course and also in your book, I presume.
1: Yeah, so my book is an introduction to Tara, the 21 Taras, a bit about my life and my connection with her and what brought me to writing this book. Then there are going to be 21 chapters, each devoted to each 21 Taras, where I talk about her name, what it means, what she means, her mantra, her symbol. And then I spend time doing a deeper dive into some more interesting facts about her. Like Saraswati, I talk about the overlap with the Vedas and then the Hindu tradition and what she means on a deeper level. And then the thing that's quite unique, I think, is that I also talk about a woman or a transgender woman or you know, a woman who embodies The quality of that particular Tara to help bring her alive, because often these deities can feel very arcane, you know, very distant. And so this came to me like, where are the Taras in the world, you know, and who's manifesting these qualities? And so I've done that, you know, like with Saraswati. I have a couple women who embody the qualities of that Tara Saraswati. One of them is. A Tibetan nun named Ani Chuying who is beloved for her beautiful voice and her singing of mantra as a way to inspire people. And so she's one. Also, Toni Morrison is another one, more from the writer perspective of the exquisite use of language. You know, as you know, Saraswati is all about like bringing eloquence to our speech. Yes, I found that Toni Morrison is Saraswati, right? So then I get to talk about each of these women and tell their life story and tie in why I think they represent a particular Tara. And I think that that's going to help people connect. It already is in my classes. It's been an important part of connecting with and then bringing those qualities alive in ourselves. So that goes back to your question earlier about like how are people connecting? That's my goal is to really help people bring these qualities alive in themselves. Like where am I stuck in my creative outlet? Why am I scared to sing in public or you know why do I want to do poetry but <laughs> I don't think I'm good enough? You know like how do we bring Tara's fearlessness and the eloquence and the wisdom of like for example Saraswati Tara into my life? 21 tars also has a lot of social justice, environmental justice, racial judge, gender has a lot of implications for like bringing justice into the world, cultivating those qualities in ourselves. You know, because dharma, the word dharma can also be translated as just or justice, righteous. Mm-hmm. You yes, know, righteous. Truth. Yeah. So I see this as, yes, a personal practice, but also as like an an activated practice. Like Tara wants us to get activated, if I can say it in that way. It sounds a little cheesy, but, you know, like there's a quality of like, let's get activated. And this is a framework to explore that. So
0: fascinating. Now, the last time you were on the show, we did a whole Tara visualization that was really cool, with a seed syllable and rainbow light and so on, kind of traditional little mini Yidam practice with Green Tara, that was really interesting. But since then, you and I have been discussing a little more generically the idea of visualization and even just the eyes and vision in Buddhist practice and Hindu practice. And so I'd love to guide the conversation into that channel now. Something that I find really fascinating and in a way puzzling, but also interesting, is that if you look at traditional Hindu Tantra practice or Vajrayana practice, you see that probably the most popular form of meditation is visualization. Whether visualization for just stabilizing the mind at all or visualization as part of generation practice and so on— It's hugely popular. People loved, at least historically, loved doing it. And you get all these sumptuous images and tankas and statues and so on to help people do that. And I think it's really fascinating that, at least my experience in the West, is that people are not so gung-ho to do that. There's a little bit more reticence or a little bit more like, hey, I'm trying to still my mind, not bring up all this visualization stuff. Even though, of course, visualization can be used to still the mind. But there's a little bit of a pushback, like let's meditate on our breath instead, seems to be a little more standard. So I'm curious if you have noticed that same thing, or if that's just anecdotally my experience. And also, if you have any ideas what that might be about.
1: I have noticed that. And I really notice it depending on the setting that I'm in, the people, the Sangha I'm in. Who I'm talking to definitely differs. You know, most of my upbringing from the young age of three up until now has mainly been more in the Tantric Buddhist traditions of Tibet and also Hindu yogic Tantric traditions as well. So I wasn't even really aware of that aversion to visualizing at all until I started practicing with and even teaching in more. Vipassana influenced spaces more, um, you know, like Theravada or earlier streams. And it's a curiosity for me. It's something that I've thought a lot about and wondered, you know, why is it? And I have some ideas and inklings that are pointing me to perhaps understanding and appreciating that more. But it's true that in Tibetan, tradition, like the most common form of shamatha, calm abiding practice, is to visualize the image of a Buddha. It's like the first meditation you'll get from a lama. Yeah, it's day one. Day one, yeah. Get a statue or get a tanka, gaze at it for a while, soften the gaze, let it kind of imprint on your subconscious, and then close your eyes and try to recreate it in your mind's eye, and let that be your shamatha object of meditation. And that's way more commonly used than the breath awareness. It's interesting how it wasn't so popular in Tibet, and so therefore Tibetan Buddhists would be less likely to do that.
0: Do the breath awareness.
1: To do the breath awareness, yeah. But it's there. It's not that it's not there. What's interesting is is that sometimes the Tibetan style will be like, okay, start with some breathing, relax with the breath, but then they move on to other things. Or later, you get more explicit Breath work with the tummo tsalung, the trokor, the Tibetan yogas. Yeah,
0: serious pranayama type work.
1: Yeah, exactly, which is different than just observing the breath. That's more effort, like in yoga. So. Yeah,
0: and also a method suggested by a guy nobody's ever heard of in Tibetan Buddhism called Padmasambhava is <laughs> like look at a pebble, look at a leaf, and then close your eyes and visualize it as a beginning practice. And you work on stabilizing the mind by bringing up this stable image, right? It's very, very common. And I love doing this kind of meditation and have noticed that it's really powerful in the sense of if you're using it for shamatha, if you're using it to stabilize and calm the mind, you get a lot of immediate feedback, on how you're doing by whether the image is even there or not. So it's really nice because you don't have as much of a quality of being lost in thought for minutes without noticing it when you're starting out. It's just really interesting that there's a kind of a we don't do that kind of mood in a lot of... Dharma circles.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm remembering your question a little better now in terms of that. Like, why is it like that? And for shamatha, it makes sense to use an object. I mean, there is shamatha without an object or without a sign, which is different, but we're talking about shamatha with an object or with a sign. So using a pebble, like Padmasambhava says, or a stick, just take whatever you've got on your desk or your coffee table and put it in front of you and stare at it for a little while, get the shape, the color, the proportions, the details, and then try. Try to recreate it in your mind's eye. Even with Padmasambhava, he'll even say, just stare at it. Like, don't close your eyes and try to recreate it in your mind's eye. He's just a focal point. Like, don't waver and hone in your attention onto that stick or pebble. And notice when you get distracted, come back. Notice, come back. It's the same thing as the breath. And in a way, it is a bit... More straightforward because the breath is kind of slippery and subtle, right? It's moving. Yeah, it kind of disappears a little bit here and there. We have emotional feelings connected to the breath. I remember when I first started doing vipassana meditation, I would have like tension in my belly and almost have a panic attack. <laughs> you know, I've heard other people say the same thing that when we start to focus on the breath, it can sometimes bring about some anxiety. I wouldn't say a panic attack. I should just say some some anxiety would come up for me, and that can happen cuz the breath is tied to it could be tied to trauma it could be tied to self image body image for women we try to hold in our stomach then you tell us to let it out and breathe into it deeply and relax there's kind of anger it, like, that's what i was coming to it was actually like emotions were releasing as i was trying to drop in and focus on the breath so breath is a fabulous definitely great object of meditation but like a pebble or Buddha statue or Tanka might actually be good for some people to start with the shamatha. But then if you move into Vipassana, maybe that's it, Michael, is that people, when we're going into Vipassana, I'm just kind of riffing here, but with Vipassana, And I'm talking about vipassana, like insight into the empty nature of thought, not kind of the modern pop culture use of vipassana, which is more of a kind of a strange umbrella term that encompasses all sorts of things. And vipassana is what kind of comes after you've stabilized your mind in shamatha, calm abiding. So you have a nice clear lens now through which to probe into the nature of phenomena, the nature of the mind, thoughts, the sense of self. And in that, you know, we can use visualization sometimes for that as well, but usually it's more about how we're relating to our projections, our assumptions, our grasping onto the solidity of thoughts or appearances, releasing that opening, opening, opening. And so I would think that the visualization is less commonly used. And now it's coming to me, you know, with deity yoga, I think I talked about this in our last interview. Deity yoga, those two stages of generation right, where you imagine yourself as a deity, that's a shamatha practice. You say mantra, you send rainbow light. It's all visualization that's meant to stabilize the mind and open the subtle body and do all sorts of good stuff. And then the next stage of deity yoga is what's called the completion stage, where you dissolve the visualization and you rest in open awareness. You let go of all effort all visualization, all ideation, as much as possible, and just rest, and that is vipassana or vipassana. In the Sanskrit language, it's vipassana. In the Pali, it's vipassana. And so perhaps the visualization, like we find in the stages of the deity yoga of generation, where you use the mind, you visualize, you effort, and then the stage of completion where you release the effort and rest in open awareness as much without any concept as possible is more in line with this vipassana or vipassana. And perhaps that influences our modern vipassana teachers, right? Who focus more on the empty rather than the form. What do you think about that?
0: That makes sense because, of course, Even in Theravada practice, there's the use of kasinas, which is all visualization practice. But that kasina Mm -hmm. practice is part of jhanas, right? So it's part of the shamatha strain of Theravada practice, not the Vipassana strain. So that is totally in alignment. That's a good point. It's interesting, though, Daniel Ingram has repopularized the use of kasina in Vipassana practice using the fire casina, right, has really made that a major part of his teaching. And listeners of the podcast may remember a couple years ago, I went to one of his fire casina retreats and, and talked to him about it several times on the podcast. I mean, it is really a fun and interesting practice and fits in quite well with doing jhanas and or leading into Vipassana. So it's not that it's not there. In Theravada, it's just not there very much in Western Vipassana.
1: That's it. That's what I was trying to get at, is there's a Vipassana teacher in the Bay Area, I was co-teaching with him, we were kind of preparing to talk together, and right before class started we were talking about mantra and visualization, and he looked at me with a sly look, he's like, we don't visualize in Vipassana, you know vipassana. You just don't. And I was like, what are you talking about? Yes, you do. But maybe that's your tradition or your frame, but like the kasina practice. Also, like monastics, especially men, male monks who perhaps were working with desire back in the day during the time of the Buddha, and since then have been... Instructed to imagine the the beautiful woman that you might be lusting after as a corpse or as a flesh and bone and pus and excrement, and you know everything that's going on underneath that beautiful skin as a way to pacify the flame of desire. So the eyes, this brings us also to this whole thing of vision, right, and visualizing. In the vinaya, The code of conduct for the monastic community, it's taught that the eyes should be downcast, that you shouldn't let the eyes wander, because those eyes, they're called the immoral eyes. (laughs) Those eyes will lead you astray, will cause distraction, but also ignite desire in you. So in certain schools, the eyes themselves, I'm going less out of visualization now and more into like the organ of the eye is seen as kind of an enemy, you know, and that eyes should be downcast. It's a source of distraction and will lead you astray. Later, the eyes start to play a much more positive role on the path to liberation in terms of Mahayana, Vajrayana.
0: Can you give an example of this positive role of the physical eyes?
1: Well, what's interesting is in the sutras, you start to see the Mahayana sutras in particular, which are around, you know, the turn of the millennium. It's like the next big kind of revolution or movement in Buddhism in India that you start to see more positive associations with the eyes, like um, the divine eye or supernatural eye, which uh, really starts to appear in various sutras also enlightened eyes. So the divine eye, going back to the divine eye, is like a capacity that the practitioner, the meditator develops through purification, through contemplation, where the vision, your eyes and your sight start to be more like that of the gods in the form realm. Like You can see people's karma you can see into other worlds. So it's almost like an extrasensory perception starts to dawn. And that's framed in a positive light. And then like in the Perfection of Wisdom Sutras, particularly in the Perfection of Wisdom, the Prajnaparamita in 25,000 lines, in that text you start to see words like enlightened eyes, And this is really casting our normal eyes, you don't have to be a special god to have these eyes, like it's egalitarian. (laughs) You can develop the qualities of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas attained through practice called the enlightened eyes, and there are all sorts of qualities that are associated with that. The final quality of the enlightened eye is to have the eye of the Buddha, which is the final realization, is really being that omniscient, You know, being all-seeing, all-understanding. So, the eyes are so interesting because the eyes, Michael, can also be used in Vipassana in the sense where all the senses are such an interesting doorway. You know, they're all the doors of perception, right? So, the eyes are used a lot like in the sutras, but also in Nagarjuna's teachings in his famous text called The Fundamental Treaties on the Middle Way, where he teaches emptiness by using the example of vision, because it's so powerful in our life, right? Like when we see things, they look so solid and real. But what the Buddha taught and what Nagarjuna plays with too is that you have to really break it down, right? Where you have the eye organ that makes contact with an object, an outer object, like I'm looking at a red journal that I have on my desk right now. And then based on the organ, the subject, coming into contact with the object, the red journal, there is an awareness, it's called the eye consciousness that arises. And so it's like a mental image. And so Buddhists are very much about, like, break it down, you know, like, does that journal out there exist in and of itself, or is it a kind of a co-arising based on my organ of sight, my organ of perception? And so teachings on emptiness are often used, the use of the eyes, but you could do the same thing with taste, touch, smell, sound. You know, sound meditation is quite common. And so in that sense, the eyes could be a doorway into more grasping and solidification, right? And reification of the outer world as being real, but they could also be a doorway into understanding the co-creation, the co-arising, dependent arising, right, of all phenomena, like the things that we see with our eyes look like they all exist out there. But actually what I'm seeing from the Buddhist perspective, maybe even from the modern science perspective, is an image created in my mind, that eye consciousness. It's very interesting, I think.
0: It is super interesting. I'm reminded that most of the Buddhist metaphors, not all, but most of them for emptiness, are visual images like rainbows or magic shows or lightning There's all these really graphic visual images, right? A few of them aren't necessarily visual like a dream, but there's something about vision and especially things like mirages and rainbows and these natural phenomena that give us a sort of a metaphoric hint towards emptiness that is very compelling, right? Our vision does. Mm present us with a lot of opportunities. It's no wonder that Nagarjuna used vision as the main example. Beyond even the physical eyes, there's the whole understanding or the whole interest in light itself in a couple different ways, like Mm -hmm. the light of consciousness or the light of awareness, where light is the metaphor for knowing at all, like what in Sanskrit would be a prabhasvara I can't think of it Mm -hmm. in Tibetan, but just the knowing quality of awareness that it's luminous, the luminosity, which in Sanskrit is pravasvara.
1: I think it's Selva.
0: Yeah, Selva, exactly. That's right. And so it's often talked about as luminosity or brilliance, but it's a metaphor for knowing at all, right? And yet, at the same time, we can have other kinds of nyams and meditative experiences where we do have actual just luminosity in our experience with our eyes closed of bright light Mm -hmm. in the mind, right? So there's all these really powerful light-type metaphors, but even light-type experiences, optical experiences. Mm -hmm. And correct me if I'm wrong, you're much more of an expert about this, but if we get into Dzogchen, but particularly like Bun, Dzogchen, It's like the whole world is seen as nothing but light and light rays and maybe a little bit of sound, right?
1: Yeah, it's true. It's the light is very important in terms of the practice and visions and all of that. And that the rainbow colored light is said to be the subtle expression of the five elements that manifest in more solidity out there in the world. So, like I said earlier, you know, green light is the wind. Red light is fire, the blue is water, gold is associated with the element of earth, and then white light in the enigma system that I'm in, it can be flipped a little bit with the blue, but often the white is associated with the element of space, which is commonly included in the the list of elements. The space element is that which is within which everything else occurs, right? So all the other elements arise. And light is considered to be the manifestation, the more subtle, less dense expression. And that's why you have yogis who have been good yogic practitioners at the moment of their own death, they know how to reabsorb into the elements and therefore into light. And that's why you hear about rainbow bodies. You hear about yogis who pass away and their body, the physical body itself, literally dissolves back into the elements. And all that remains are the dead tissues, like the hair and the the nails. And that's because they, through their yogic practices, in a way have kind of traced creation or manifestation backwards, gone back to the source and learned how to reintegrate with the elements. That's also the technology that enables people to fly or to speed walk. I'm sure you've heard about this. If you've integrated with the air element, you can actually... Rise up off of the earth and kind of float along. One of my Tibetan yoga teachers, Lama Pema Dorje, tells this fabulous story. He was really known as a great yogi. He taught the Anu Yoga, which is the yogic practices of Tsalung Tumo, and he was the Tumo master. He lived here in the Bay Area and he passed away a few years ago. His wife is here and alive. Her name is Khandro Kunzang. And she's also a teacher of mine. In any case, when I was studying with him, he told this story and he wasn't bragging. You know, you're not supposed to brag about this kind of stuff. And he told it in kind of a state of wonder, like, I don't know what happened, but I can tell you. That when you practice the yogas, the pranayamas, these visualizations that help you refine and purify the subtle body, the physical body, and the mind, things start to happen. And he told this story, he was up at Sopema, which is a very holy place in northern India, where there's a lake devoted to Padmasambhava. That's a whole other story. So above this lake, Sopema, in north India, are a whole system of caves where Yogis, yoginis, the Tibetan, Indian, and also Western practitioners will go there if they've got a good hookup, you know, they've got a good connection, and inside scoop, they can do retreat in some of these really, really interesting caves. I've been there. And so the story goes that he was studying, Lama Pema Dorje was studying, he was young at the time, with a small group of other students studying with their yogi teacher, their Lama doing intensive retreat, learning the pranayamas, the Tibetan yogas, and I think he said they'd been up there for three to six months. They'd been up there in intensive retreat for quite a while, three to six months perhaps. And then he said it was time for them to leave, and so they closed their retreat, packed up, and started to make their way down the mountainside to go to the main town where they would catch a bus and go, I don't know, to Delhi or somewhere. And As they were walking down the hill, a smaller town bus came by and a couple of his friends said, oh, we're going to hop on to this bus to make our way down the hill to the main bus station in the main town. It's a few hour drive, it's long. And so Lama Pema Dorje said, you know what, you go ahead, I'm feeling good walking, I'm going to walk and I'll meet you there. There's a chai stall there, i will meet you and we'll have some chai when I get there. And the bus ride was maybe a half hour. But the walk, they all knew it was going to be in a few hours. So he said, I'll meet you in a few hours. And he walks and he says he started to do the practice of speed walking, where you visualize a green seed syllable, I believe it's hung, which is associated with the element of the wind, flapping on two green flags beneath your feet. And you do breathing exercises, you do pranayama while you're walking and visualization, and It's said to facilitate you merging with the element of air, wind, and enable you to drift, you could say, or float. And what he described is that he didn't really feel anything extraordinary. He just felt really light and good, like he was in bliss. He was kind of blissed out, you know, like we can get after a few months of retreat or more. And he was walking down along the footpath, winding these old Indian footpaths, you know, down the mountainside. And he shows up at the bus station. And his friends are there, but they literally had, like, just gotten there. (laughs) And they said to him, how did you get here so fast? That was supposed to take you three hours. And he said, I don't know. Put up his hand, I don't know. You know, just happened. I did my practice. Maybe it worked.
0: Carried along by the air element.
1: Yeah. So, that's an example of, like, The green color, the light, representing the element wind, and if we merge the visualization, if we've done practice, if somehow yogically these things come together, the power of the mind is quite strong, he was able to speedwalk down that mountaintop. We could do things like that.
0: (laughs) And so you talking about the five elemental colors reminds me of the drops, right? The tingle of lights at the heart that's often practiced in Dzogchen, which I'm sure you must know a lot about.
1: Yes, it is an important part of the Nyingma tradition of Dzogchen in terms of meditative practices through the visionary experiences. So the vision is actually used to help bring the practitioner to realization. By meditating on space, so the eyes are open, and what starts to appear is that as the consciousness starts to settle, the tension settles, the winds settle in the body, one will start to have visions of rainbow-colored spheres called tigle. And that the, in those spheres you may start to see mandala structures and even deities as expressions of those five lights. And so what believed, these are called tigle or kind of like light strands or like a... Tiglis strands, often you'll see them like a pearl necklace linked and connected. And the understanding is, is that the eyes are connected through subtle body channel, you know, subtle channel that traces down to the heart chakra, which is said to be the seat of awareness. And this is called the kati channel, the, the crystal, it's called the crystal channel that terminates at the eyes and originates down in the heart. And what's interesting is this channel system is different than normal Vajrayana yogic anatomy, subtle body anatomy. So it's not the central channel, it's not the two side channels, it's different. And this might be connected more with Bun, it might be connected also just explicitly with the Dzogchen tradition, which is sort of connected to Vajrayana, but also its own whole brilliant lineage that's so interesting and maybe too much to go into now in terms of its history. So it's a different map. And this channel leads to the heart chakra, where the seat of awareness resides, which is also the seat or the home of the five lights. And the five lights are the subtle expressions of the elements within the body. And as we meditate with the eyes open, it opens that channel. Like the Dzogchen practitioners will say, it's fine to meditate with the eyes closed, but just know that you're closing that channel. So they teach to raise the gaze and to look above the horizon at a comfortable angle. And the practice in Dzogchen is to gaze into space Merge awareness with space and release grasping, release distraction, and unify awareness with space. It's a very important aspect of the practice of trekcha, which means breakthrough. It's the second to the final stage of Dzogchen practice. Then after you're doing trekcha for a while and you've stabilized that, the mixing awareness with space through various techniques, then you move to the final step of Dzogchen, which is tugel which means the leap over. And that is where you start to see those visions of the rainbow-colored spheres, and you start doing various positions with the eyes. There are also different yogic postures that people do to ignite the visions that one has in Tugil. And the essence of that is to actually embrace the faculty of the eyes through the meditative practice to impart or to open to visionary experiences that often are spontaneous. You know, you can create the conditions for them to arise, but then it's about letting go. And spontaneous visions are held in more kind of esteem than the constructed visualization. You know, that's kind of not as optimal. And so in Dzogchen, these visions start to arise as the awareness settles more deeply into the heart chakra. And this helps us to realize the way that the mind projects appearances and to understand that ultimately those appearances are empty, that they're creations of the mind, so to speak. They're projections, they're expressions of the ground of awareness and therefore need not be solidified. And so that is the use of the visionary experience. Using the eyes, opening that kati channel to the heart and then observing those lights that appear and seeing into the empty nature of those lights as being a source or coming from the source of our own inner awareness.
0: I think it's so interesting how in the course of Buddhism exploring, and Hinduism too, exploring all these different methods of awakening and liberation and human flourishing of various sorts, they've explored everything from... Meditation with your eyes closed and then meditation with your eyes open but cast downward like one might do in Zen or whatever where your eyes are just kind of cracked open and you're staring at the floor or at the wall in a soft way to here we've got, you know, actually looking above the horizon and keeping the eyes completely open the whole time and having that be a whole other way of working It's just so cool how over the millennia they've explored the full range of working with the eyes and visual phenomena and visualization as a method for liberation.
1: Absolutely. I'm so glad you brought that up because I don't mean to kind of lock this into this framework, but I was thinking about that the other day, that in a way it's like a developmental process. Like when we're starting out on the path, we're like children, you know, we need to downcast the eyes a little bit. We need to rein in the distractions and control the environment to a certain extent so that we can focus, you know, and develop stability and build our foundation. But as the stability grows and we're feeling more adept in the practice and we mature, we get a little older, we start to want to look around a little bit, what's out there, you know, I have. I know the inner world now, maybe I can raise the gaze a little bit and start to let in those appearances, those visual perceptual experiences of the world and take those onto the path, embrace them onto the path, so to speak. And then I was thinking more of like, there is the Bodhisattva gaze, actually. There are different names of the gazes. Like the downward gaze is considered to be the Shravaka or the Arhat gaze. And then the middle, where you're looking straight ahead, like at the horizon, is the Bodhisattva gaze. And I was thinking about that because when we're looking at the horizon, we are connected and the same egalitarian kind of same plain as everybody else. And that's the goal of the bodhisattva, is to help all beings to postpone our enlightenment until all beings can come with us, right? (laughs) And then, it's been a long time since I've seen this, but there's the upward gaze, I think it's called the heruka gaze. And that is like more wrathful, more open, more dynamic. And that's upward facing. And these are different categories that are used in the Dzogchen practice where the teacher will say, okay, for three days, do the lower gaze or do the bodhisattva gaze now for the next few days. So it's not that one's not utilized because it's said to be more rudimentary or introductory. They're all meant to bring about various experiences. Yeah. And then culminating in the upward gaze, it's like you're completely open. You know, you don't have to protect from anything. All of these appearances are actually. Like Jigme Lingpa says, logs on the fire of our awareness. It just helps awareness blaze forth even stronger. You know, we don't have to turn away from anything. That's a really advanced practitioner right there, <laughs> and that's our eyes wide open. You know,
0: so cool. Another really interesting visualization practice in early Buddhism is metta. Right, just loving kindness meditation involves visualizing others. Right.
1: Yeah, visualization was used in the early days and should still be used today. Another expression of metta, I like to think of it as a building block of metta, like an expansion of the beautiful alchemy of metta, loving kindness, where you visualize a loved one or even an enemy in front of you. And with each prayer, with each breath, they're being relieved of suffering, they're flourishing in their life. We're working with the mind to transform the mind and heart. and also, another really interesting visualization practice—it's more, you could say, from the Mahayana phase of development of Buddhism—is Donglen, sending and receiving, where it's similar to Metta, but we use the breath. Either it's our own for working with ourselves or with another. We visualize. Hardship or suffering, whether it's illness or mental afflictions or emotional challenges, uh, surrounding the person in the form of like a dark, smoky vapor. So that's a visualization right there. We breathe it in. To ourselves, which takes guts, you know, we're not literally breathing in that, but we imagine that we have that bodhisattva intention to help another. And so we breathe it in, take it off of them, we take it from them, we give them a respite with the in-breath and then transform it at our Buddha nature, our wisdom mind at the heart space, and then breathe out a clear, cool, healing light or wind that helps to clear their suffering, clear that dark, smoky vapor. So we're very much using the visual cues of cloud, fog, those images, as well as light and wind to help our mind stay with the breath, the inflow and the outflow married with the intention to help others. So that's Tonglen, very similar to Metta, but in a way it's a bit more edgy than Metta. Because in Metta, you're more just sending the love, right, sending the well wishes, sending the prayers. With Tonglen, you're actually taking a step further and saying, okay, I'm gonna send that to you, but I'm also gonna breathe in and help take from you that which is ailing you, transform it at my heart, and then send that goodness out to you. Yeah, so Tonglen is an interesting example of a visualization practice that you'll find kind of more in the Mahayana teachings on how to cultivate compassion and more about developing our heartfelt motivation. So developing those qualities within us through visualization.
0: Good. So Chandra, last time you taught us a really interesting visualization practice. I'm curious if you have another one that you'd like to bring to listeners
1: this time. Yeah, let's do one that's more in our body, like more of a yogic visualization, which is a very important part of Tantra, both Hindu and Buddhist, and usually feels pretty good. (laughs) So let's do that one.
0: That sounds great.
1: Does that sound good? Okay. So, if you're new to visualization, just feel this like you're going on a journey. You know, I'm taking you on a journey. You've never been there before maybe and you're curious without a lot of presuppositions or expectations just as a way to be open beginner's mind type of an attitude. And if you're sitting, sit up nice and tall or if you're lying down, that's also fine. You can find a comfortable position and let's take a few breaths to settle in. Allow the eyes to close or let them be slightly open if you're inspired to try the eyes open. The eyes aren't so important in this practice per se. What we're working with here is more of the quality of visualization, the inner vision. So let your eyes be comfortable. Your face relax, the jaw relax, the shoulders, everything relaxing, any tension melting down into the earth beneath you with the out-breath. And then imagine your subtle body inside of yourself, the body, not so much as a body of flesh and bone, but a body of light and vibration, sound, movement. And within the physical form is your central axis, like the spine, the axis mundi. But in the subtle body anatomy, we call it the central channel. It's said to be about the width of your own thumb, circumference of your own thumb. And it originates at the base of the spine and sits right in front of the spinal column. And like a bulb, there's the kind of like plant bulb at the base, right at the base of the spine, in front of the spine, rising up like a shoot, like a stalk of a plant all the way up through the body, running along the front of the spinal column itself, and terminating up at the crown of the head, just within the top of the cranium, in a thousand-petaled lotus blooming there called the sahasrara, the sahasrara, the thousand-petaled lotus. So this is an internal visualization, imagination. It's also a feeling. Feel that central axis, your own center of your own mandala, the axis mundi, beginning from the base of the spine all the way up, terminating at the crown of the head. and feel this like an effervescent, thin, fine tube of light. And the tube, the central channel, is the color of a sky blue. And now imagine at the base of the central channel, a small bindu, an orb of light, like a drop or an essence of the moon. So it's like a little small moon, full moon, at the base of the central channel, glowing a pearl of light. And we'll coordinate the visualization with the flow of the breath. So, let's all take an in-breath together. And as you exhale, imagine that that bindu, that orb of light begins to travel up through the central channel. All the way up through the central channel, up to the lotus blooming at the crown of the head, where it rests at the center, the pistil of the lotus. And with the inhale, imagine that bindu of light descends slowly back down the central channel. Really track it. This is your visualization practice. Don't skip, try not to skip any regions of the central channel. It's like you're combing the central channel with your attention and with the bindu. Again, exhale and it rises up from the base to the top. Maybe a gentle pause. Inhale, let it descend. Let this bindu of light, white light, travel down the sky blue central channel. You can feel it too as a cleansing, an opening, of that energy pathway within you, all the way down to the bulb at the base and continue like this. The exhale is the rising and the inhale is the descending. So you're rooting. The natural feeling of the inhale is to go up. So you're counteracting that upward flow with a downward visualization, rooting down with the in-breath and inversely rising up with the out-breath. The natural function of the out-breath feels like a downward flow, so we counter and balance that with an upward flow, visualizing. Let's do three more rounds of the breath like this. Exhale as it rises up. Inhale as it rises down and really hook your attention onto that bindu moving. That's your object of awareness. If you lose it, come back again and again. You can slow down the breath. Last cycle. As your next inhalation descends up, bindu down to the base, what we're going to do is from the base, then exhale it back up, but stop when you reach the heart center. And then breathe in and out. Feel like you're breathing directly in and out from the heart chakra that's at the center of the sternum, right at the center of of the central channel, embraces that central channel. And take a few more breaths, letting that orb of light, that bindu, pulse build, glow in the heart center, and really rest the mind there, unifying the mind with the bindu in your heart chakra. You may feel a sense of warmth, luminosity in that heart to be the seat of the soul. You may even start to feel the rainbow colors manifesting there a little. and then when you're ready you can begin to come back into the room open the eyes if they were closed and feel yourself in space but without losing that feeling of the central channel that you've cultivated it's like you just brought it into being by visualizing it you know does it really exist or did i create it, it doesn't really matter it's more about the feeling And then also that embodiment of the heart chakra, which isn't always so easy for us. You know, we're so head-oriented usually. It can be nice to really focus the mind on an orb of light in the heart chakra as a way to grow and open the capacity of the heart. Yeah. So that's it. So the meditation that we just did is adapted from visualization techniques I've learned from my Tibetan lamas who've taught me the Tsalung Tumo, as well as from one of my teachers who is from the Kriya Yoga tradition, Hinduism. And so what I did is just really boiled it down and simplified it. You know, we didn't visualize the side channels, we didn't visualize the chakras as a way just to give you a taste of what a visualization can feel like when it's done more from the Tantric yogic traditions that cultivate the subtle body.
0: That was really, really fun. Thank you for sharing it. In terms, again, of what you're doing out there in the world, what are some ways that people can get in touch with you?
1: Yeah, people can get in touch with me by going to my website and signing on to my newsletter. I usually send out something once a month, on average, updating events or courses that I'll be doing. I teach a weekly Wednesday night class with a dear friend of ours, Eve Eckman, at the San Francisco Dharma Collective, and that's an ongoing drop-in class, 7.30 Pacific time, easy for people to drop in on Zoom, and that could be a way to just start to explore my teachings. I also offer online retreats and hopefully in-person retreats through Tara Mandala, that's really my main home, my Dharma home taramandala.org offers so many different cool retreats throughout the year and that's where I'm teaching the 21 Taras they do a great job with their retreats and I also offer other retreats through them as well and in various places around the country and I do go to Europe from time to time like this summer I'll teach in Europe the online courses right now are the best bet and those are forthcoming You know, every quarter I'll launch something new or announce a new course. So that would be the best way. Get on my newsletter.
0: <laughs> great, Chandra. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. I really appreciate and always have a great great time.
1: It was a pleasure. I always love talking with you too. Thank you, Michael.